I hope that um, you, you've been following along. I hope that uh, even as we're walking through this, and maybe you weren't here last week, or maybe this might even be your first time, and yet as we read God's Word, we can look at it, and we can see the story played out. We can see what is happening to Jesus, that he is, he's being wrongfully accused. And if, if you've followed along, you, this is not a surprise. We knew this was coming. We knew this was coming because Jesus told his disciples that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to sinful men. And there, they're going to kill me. And so, to see it played out is both disheartening and encouraging at the same time. It's disheartening because we would say, man, those are the people that are supposed to receive him as the Messiah. They're the ones who have been waiting and longing for this moment. And here's the moment and they're missing it. But it's also encouraging because Jesus knew. And he, this is not a surprise to him. We've seen that he is going to the cross with purpose. He is going to the cross to lay down his life for you and for me and those who are in Christ. And, and nothing's going to stop that. Today we're going to see that false witness can't stop that, that, that blasphemy can't stop that, that the abuse that he's taking from the guards and from the council can't stop that. And even his close friends betraying him and denying him doesn't stop what Jesus is doing. Jesus has a plan. It's a plan that he and the Father and the Spirit came up with at the very beginning to execute for their glory, and now it's happening. So I hope you look at it, and I hope that as we're walking through it this morning, you're looking closely to see how, how have we failed? How have we been faithless, and how has Jesus been faithful? We're continuing our time in the Gospel of Mark, and, and many people refer to this, uh, this portion of Mark as the passion of Christ. And I'm not talking about a movie. I'm talking about a term that's used to describe the, the time from when Jesus was praying in the garden and we saw the agony that he prayed with, the anguish of knowing what was coming, and he, he asked the Father, he says, Father, not, you know, if you can take this, if you will, and I know you can, will you take this cup from me? And at the end of his petition, he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And after sitting before the Father, he goes and he walks in obedience to the will of the Father. And so from that moment in the garden to his crucifixion on Golgotha is considered the passion of the Christ. And when we think passion, we think lust, we think love, we think all of these uh, like words that are, that are different from what we see Jesus doing. But the word uh, passion comes from a Latin word called pati, pati, P-A-T-I. And really what it means is suffering to suffer or to endure. And so when we see Jesus, yes, it's, it's him pouring out his love for us. And so in that sense, it's, it is kind of meets our definition of passion. But more than that, it is Jesus suffering. It is Jesus enduring what he didn't deserve. So we're here in the passion of the Christ. And it's not a long time. Like we, We're hitting this, and it's sounding like four or five episodes going through. But we're talking about the night, Thursday night, to maybe Friday morning, midday Friday. 
All of this is taking place. And so it's, it, it, it's a very condensed thing, but the beauty of it is we have such a detailed record of it because all of the disciples saw it. They were there. Many of them wrote down what happened or shared it verbally with others. And so now we have this beautiful conglomerate picture of what Jesus did. And so I pray that today we would see Jesus in the midst of that. You see, Jesus is going to the cross to suffer and to endure. We've looked at Hebrews 12 too quite often the last couple of weeks, but I just want to remind you, it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is reminding us again, like, what did Jesus do? And that's what we need to see today. We need to see what Jesus has done. Not, yeah, there's going to be some things that we need to do as a response to that, but the key, the thing that we need to see most is who Jesus is and what he has done. Because that's where we run to. As we've already sung, as we've already prayed, we run to Jesus. This morning we're going to see Jesus endure. We're going to see Jesus enduring injustice. In a culture, in a time right now where so much focus is put on the injustice of our society, we're going to see Jesus suffer injustice. Injustice from the people who should be serving justice particularly to him. We're going to see Jesus enduring lies and falsehood. We're going to see Jesus enduring betrayal. We're going to see Jesus enduring beatings. And we're going to see Jesus enduring shame. But But listen, Hebrews said, why did he endure all of these things? What is the goal of Jesus in this? Is it just to be this man that we can look to and say, man, he he just he was selfless and he gave everything up? Yes, he did. But what is his goal? His goal is for the joy that was set before him. The joy of obedience to the Father. The joy of redeeming a people, and the joy that all of that would be to the glory of the triune God. So I pray today we would see that. Let's ask God. God, I thank you just for the reality of our desperate need. I thank you that that battles a culture that would say that we can do it. That, that it's within us that if we just try hard, if we work hard, We can figure it out, and yet you have said that we can't. And even in your condemning of the world, you also give us an encouragement. That if we would just trust in the work of Jesus, that it's sufficient. That that heaven could give no greater gift. There's nothing else to add to it. We have a sufficient gift in Jesus. God, but to believe that today, we need our eyes opened. We need our hearts softened. We need ears that would hear. And so, Lord, would you do that miracle in us today? By the power of your Spirit, through the working of your Word in our hearts and lives, Lord, not just in this place, but throughout the world. God, would you make us a people who trust you and love you, who proclaim you, 
who follow you. We ask this in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We've got a couple different things to look at here, and um, we're, we're talking about the idea of choosing death over life. It's kind of where we, where, what we see with the council. And so Jesus is brought before this council, and the council is made up of the religious leaders of his, his day, and, and this is a religion that he subscribes to. So before you think like this is a, a different religion and now he's being brought before them. No, this is his religion, his people, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. And he's standing before them. Most Bible translations title this section as Jesus before the council or Jesus before the Sanhedrin or Jesus before the accusers. But when you read it, it almost looks like it's a trial. But none of them ever use that language. And there's a reason and we see it right off the bat. So let, let's read this first section. Verse 53, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that, he, that is made with hands, and three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even this testimony did not agree. So here you have Jesus walking into, um, m- most likely it's a building or it's a courtyard in a building. And all of this is happening at night. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Like, this should be done during the day. According to their customs and their, their rules, this should have been done during the day, but they're trying to keep it done at night. They're trying to expedite this process, and they're not looking for truth. It says in verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. It doesn't even say that they were trying to figure out what was going on. They weren't searching for, hey, is this true? Is, is he really the Messiah? They already have an agenda. And their agenda is the death of Jesus. So going into this, the, 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 the odds are stacked against Jesus. All the witnesses that have been called have already been prepped. Like we all kind of have this, this whole trial lawyer thing going through our head thinking about what that looks like and how witnesses get paid off or they get threatened, bad things, and so then they would confess a false statement. And so all of this is already set up. But the crazy thing that is that even in the midst of that, their, their testimonies don't agree. Like they, they, there's not enough proof against Jesus for them to hold the charge against him of blasphemy or of even raising up a rebellion So they're trying to get him to confess. The goal is to put him to death. Ultimately, what we see here is we have this lamb led to the slaughter. So often we've been jumping back to Isaiah 53, and there's been different places in Isaiah who lived uh, a long time before Jesus came, and he prophesied. He said, hey, these things are going to happen because God told him to write these things down, gave him words to speak, and so his words were about a suffering servant who would come. 
And when you see in Isaiah 53, 7, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The next verse after what we read earlier, where they just said that he had uh, said that he would destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days he'd build another not made with hands. Yet their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus doesn't answer to the false accusations that are brought against him. He doesn't have to defend himself. Now, as, as fully human which is what Jesus was, you've got to imagine that there's something in him because we see it in ourselves all the time where we have to defend ourselves. When we are called out by maybe our, our spouse or our parent or even our children calling us out as we talked about at community group last week, like, like can we be confronted in our sin? Can we be challenged and, and, and even come to the place where, yeah, that's, that's actually true about me. I've had, crazy, I've had so many opportunities this week since we talked about it for, for my own sin to be very evident in the way that I handle my conversations with my children and I want to rise up and defend myself. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't defend himself, even though the accusations are not true, that they're, they're lies, that they're falsehoods that don't even make sense. Like he could have easily said, you just contradicted that guy over there and said something completely different. So just negate it all. But he doesn't. He is silent, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Before you think that, okay, well, if, if Jesus knows prophecy and he knows what's going to happen he doesn't want to say anything to screw it up no Jesus is also super wise like we've seen him actually respond to some of the Pharisees and some of the leaders in beautiful ways and so we don't we don't need to think that Jesus would screw it up if he had talked no he he's saving what he's going to say and he's not going to respond out of his flesh but he's going to respond as God and we see that as we continue, but I want to skip 61 and 62 and jump to 63. The high priest, after Jesus' testimony, tears his garments, and what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Listen, what moves, what moves this council that's gathered to a, a mob that is now rioting and beating and throwing things out. Like, what, what happens that causes this upheaval? Well, when Jesus finally talks, he says something very profound. Verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. But then the high priest asked him a different question. He says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. There's two questions there. The first one is, are you the Christ? And, and that one's a big deal. 
Because all of the Jews had an idea of the Christ who would come. Christ and Messiah are interchangeable words that we use differently sometimes, but, but really they're the same word. It's the anointed one, the one who would come and redeem, the one who would come and rescue. Many rulers during that time had actually come and claimed that they were the Christ, that they were the Messiah, and had led physical rebellions to try to rescue the people of Israel from the grasp of the Romans. And yet each one of these so-called Christ and Messiahs were proved wrong. They failed in what they were attempting to do. And so the first question is, are you the Christ? And, and it's a, a question that had been asked of Jesus. Remember, if you, remember Peter's proclamation, which was beautiful in Mark 8, was saying that you, we believe that you are the Christ because Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one who would come and rescue and change and free a people. And so the first part of the question is, are you the Christ? The second part of the question is key. The son of the blessed. You didn't necessarily have to be the son of God in, in this idea of a, of a savior and a messiah to, to be that. You could just be somebody who would come and liberate the people and free them. Moses was a type of Messiah. He came and freed the people out of Egypt. We've talked about that in the Passover and what, what Moses did. And he went and he freed the people. And he was a, an oracle of God who spoke proclamation over, over Egypt, who spoke judgment over them. And God followed that, that speaking of judgment with plagues until finally Pharaoh relented. And Moses led the people out of Egypt. Moses was not the son of God. He was a, a Messiah. He was a, a, a leader who was used to deliver the people, but he was not the Son of God. So here, the high priest is asking two questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And are you the Son of God? Jesus has been silent up until this point. And then even if he just used those first two words, you would begin to say, wow. Because what does he say? He says, I am. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that God has come in several moments in his word. And, and the, the way that he would describe himself is he has said, I am. To Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am. When he tells them to go and they, they say, who do we say sent me? You tell them, I am sent you. And so Jesus responds to this accusation and he uses God's words that God uses to describe himself, and he says, I am. This I am is an answer to both questions. He is both the one who would come and redeem and save to liberate from bondage of sin and slavery. He is that. He also is the Son of God. When the truth speaks, it's powerful. Jesus speaks, and that's what moves this court from uh, an investigation to a mob who would kill him. And it's his proclamation of truth. I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, whenever he, often when he speaks, uses Scripture. His quote that the Son of Man, we've talked about it some, but it's this, this throwback to the prophet Daniel 
who spoke about the Son of Man who would come, who was like an angel, who was like God. And so Jesus uses that statement often to refer to himself, the Son of Man. And where's the Son of Man going to be? He's going to be seated at the right hand of power. Listen, for these people, there's only one power. It's God himself. There's a, a mutual understanding that if Jesus says he's seated at the right hand of power, he's seated at the right hand of God. And that seat is reserved for the Son. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen, we're not talking about the clouds that you see. Often, throughout Scripture, clouds would uh, describe the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the, the presence of God. That God himself would move. If you, if you remember, as they were walking in the wilderness, there was a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It was the presence of God. Jesus is making two references here to Scripture to very clearly tell the people who believe Scripture, I am. I am the Christ and I am the Son of God. And in that statement, he speaks something more true than anything else that's been discussed in this council. And it causes an uproar. It causes an uproar that makes the priest tear his garments, makes them skip what should have happened where there should have been more witnesses that were called and, and, and a second witness would be produced. But he, he just skips all of that because remember, the goal was never to hear the truth. And so even as Jesus speaks truth, they don't hear it. That's got to hit home for some of us today. So often we hear truth and we, truth is spoken and we don't hear it. So I pray that God would give us the gift of hearing, the gift of his grace today, that we would say, yes, I am. I'm just like these guys. I, I rise up within myself. I feel like I have to defend myself. And yet you've said, God, that you have given me grace. And so the, the gospel is this thing that frees me from having to defend myself, but I get to lean on Jesus. And yet I want to move from that place. I want to stand on my own two feet. But God asks us to continually depend on him, to continually rest in him. Jesus says, I am, and there's echoes of Jesus' I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying, I am. Tim Keller is super helpful. He says it this way, in both of Jesus' biblical allusions here, Son of Man from Daniel seven thirteen, and at his right hand from Psalm 110, 1, the Messiah comes as a judge. Everybody in the room, all of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, knows who the Son of Man is. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And the clouds of heaven are not the same as the clouds of earth, just water vapor. These clouds are the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. Therefore, by replying as he does, Jesus is saying, I will come to earth in the very glory of God and judge the entire world. It's an astounding statement. It's a claim to deity. 
This is Jesus, and he's entering in, and he's making a statement about himself, but he's also making a statement about us. If he's the Son of God, and we are sending him, we are crucifying him, then we stand condemned, we stand judged. So how is this good news? Like we talk about, like why do we gather? We gather to hear the good news of who Jesus is. If he's the judge, that's bad news. If he's the judge and I'm not good, I'm in trouble. How is this good news? And how is this good news? Because this is supposed to be the best that we have to offer. This is like the religious elite. These are the guys who study the word and we know, hey, these are the signs we're looking for and they're completely missing it. How is this good news? That our most religious and our best treat Jesus like this. If that's the case, then what hope do we have? If this is how broken we are, and, and we are, not just they are, we are this broken What can we hope for? Can we hope for justice? Can we hope for mercy? Can we hope for love, faithfulness? Can we hope for truth? While this so-called trial that's going on, this, this council that's being convened, was destined for the death and the judgment of Jesus, the judgment of Jesus, when he comes as the judge in his second coming, will bring both death and life. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen, yeah, it's bad news. When the judge comes and we're trying to stand on our own righteousness, we are in trouble. But here's the beauty of it. It says, truly, truly, Jesus is really emphasizing this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We move from death to life. If we hear the truth, and it would change us, and we would believe it and grab hold of it, then no longer do we sit under judgment, but we stand in Christ. If we believe the truth, then our hope is not in humanity, but in God. We believe that God alone can save and rescue in the midst of injustice and chaos. And He has. We're witnessing it now. Like we're seeing what Jesus is doing to make that true. When we witness the passion of the Christ on the cross, we see the wrath of God poured out on a human. Not because that human deserved it, but because we as humans deserve it. We as humans fall woefully short even the good things that we do are often so that people would see us and they're, they're seated in pride and arrogance. And then we point to those things and we're like, man, look at me, I'm, I'm good. I've got it figured out. I'm finally getting it. But underneath there's this deep and desperate hope that we have that one would come and save us. And we're seeing it. Jesus goes to the cross. He bears the wrath of God for sinners like you and I. But he doesn't stay dead. He rises again. Three days later, he rises from the grave proving that death is defeated, that sin no longer has dominion over those who are in Christ. See, this is the truth we hope in and believe in and daily preach to ourselves constantly running back to Jesus. We talked about it, I guess it's, 
been a long time now, over a year ago, but we were in Colossians, and we looked at just the, the first couple of verses of Colossians 3, and 1 through 4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul heard Jesus say that the Son of Man sits at the right hand of power, and he believes it. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. This is the truth. This is the hope. We got the bad news. We, are, we, we sit, we stand condemned. And yet there is one who has taken our punishment for us. And He has taken our death and He's given us His life. And so today, if you don't hear anything else, I pray that you would hear that. I pray that you would hear that. That you would know that there's nothing that you could have done and Jesus has done it for you. And if that's true, then now my, my life is purchased. It's not my own. But while there's this false testimony, let's continue in our passage, while there's this false testimony that's taking place within the council... There's something just as grievous, something just as, as broken happening outside the council. The scene shifts outside to Peter. It says in verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know, you, know nor understand what you mean. That false testimony that's taking place inside, there's denial and lies and abandonment happening outside. In this moment, you get to see the desperate state of humanity because it's not just these bad religious people on the inside, but it's Peter who loved Jesus, who followed him, who, who gave up everything. Like he's given up his whole life to follow Jesus. He should be commended for, for doing this. And yet, here he is, falling at a distance. And again, like he's still falling. He, he longs for him. He loves Jesus. He's concerned. He wants to know what's going on. We have a lot, of the, a lot of what happened in the council because Peter was close, because he heard what was going on. He related to John Mark, who then wrote it down in the gospel. And Peter's there. And as he's confronted with the reality of who he says he is, he lies. And he denies Jesus. The girl walks up to him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. What you see in this is like these concentric circles going out. First, it's this girl. Who, who cares what this girl thinks? She's a servant girl coming, and yet there's, in that moment, what should be an insignificant opinion becomes so concerning for Peter that he lies to her. And as he's lied once, the lies get easier. Maybe you've found yourself in, in kind of this, this building and steamrolling Thing where you get in a lie and you just have to keep, keep lying. 
or keep doing it. And so Peter's in that same place. He lies, I, I neither know you nor understand what you mean. So he goes outside, and at that moment he hears the rooster crow, but it doesn't register to him what's taking place. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. So now it's her and a couple other people. And Peter has a lie again. He denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to him, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Obviously you're one of them. You look like him. You talk like him. You've got to be one of those people that are following Jesus. And Peter denies him a third time. Denies him three different times. Again, if this is the best that we have to offer, if this is the best of humanity, if this is a, a, a man who's passionate who goes after Jesus, who follows him, who gives up everything, and yet in the moment he denies Jesus, this is our state. Maybe you can think about times where you've been addressed and where people have said, hey, tell me about Jesus. And, and, and in shame we say, I, or we just don't say anything. I have good news. Even as we stand condemned, Jesus also loved Peter. This isn't the end of Peter's story. It says, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Verse 71, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. It's the strongest denial that he could possibly give within himself. He's essentially saying, Let me be cursed, let me die, if that's true. And as soon as the words come out of his mouth, And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Luke's gospel says that at that moment, Jesus saw him, and he saw Jesus. I think for you and me, we would have been like, man, that's a look of condemnation. But I believe that even in that moment, Jesus loved him, was loving him, was laying down his life for him. And so there's one commendable thing that that Peter does in this whole sequence of events. And it's the very last words of our text. It says, and he broke down and wept. He weeps. He cries. His heart is for Jesus, and yet his actions aren't lining up with it. Can any of us relate to that? Where our heart is for Jesus, but but our actions don't line up, and we fail, and we let him down. But it doesn't detract. His heart could have become hardened in that moment, and we've actually seen that with with, with Judas, the the hardened heart was he wasn't able to, to understand or to accept that maybe he could be forgiven. But Peter's holding on to this relationship that he has with Jesus and he's weeping. He's crying because he's he's let his master down. You know, just a little bit before in the garden, Jesus had spoke to them and said to Peter and James and John, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That heart peace Right, that we have, that we long to know Him. We have, a, we have a will and a spirit and a heart that would long to know Him, but our flesh is weak. Our, 
Our actions don't line up with our heart and our words sometimes. But the beauty of it is that if we have a heart after Jesus, we're in a good spot. It means that God has begun a work in us to change our love and our affection for Him, stirring us to love Him. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Peter has a heart that's after his Savior, but his flesh is weak. Some of us know the, the, the rest of the story and how God comes and he res- how Jesus comes and after the resurrection he restores Peter and he invites him to profess three times how much he loves him and then he commissions him to go and feed his sheep. So again, the heart is willing and now the, the flesh is being strengthened by, by the, the obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ so that Peter can go out and he can plant churches and he can proclaim the gospel and he can do all of these powerful and mighty things in the name of Jesus because his heart is after Jesus. I pray that we would have hearts after Jesus today. So what do we do with a text like this? The same thing we do with every text. We begin with repentance. We begin by by confessing what's true about us. We repent. To embrace this truth, we must repent. We have to repent of the lies that we've both believed and told. Well, we've tried to do it in and of our own strength. We've tried to get better, and then one day we're going to be good enough to where we can stand without Jesus. No, that day will not come. And so we need to repent of that. We need to repent of our denial of Jesus. Maybe there's been moments where we haven't stood for Jesus, where we haven't said, yes, I love him. We need to repent and weep over our sin. There needs to be real brokenness for the sin in our life. We can't love Jesus and love our sin. And so I pray that the Spirit would move in our hearts, that we would be a repentant people. And along with repentance comes belief. This morning we're called to believe the truth. Do we believe that Jesus is both the Messiah, the one who has freed us, the one who has set us free from captivity, and do we also believe that he is the Son of God? Because it's a, it's a whole package. You can't have just parts of it. Because if he's not the Son of God, then what he did on the cross was not sufficient. But if he is the Son of God, and he is the Christ, and he is the Messiah, then all of this has a purpose, and all of this has a meaning. All of this is the obedient Son of God, walking in obedience to the Father to redeem a people. We need to believe that Jesus is the truth, and that he sets us free. John eight thirty two. then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We need to believe that he's faithful to complete the heart work that he's begun. Like some of us in here, our hearts are longing for Jesus, but our actions are so far from that. But God's faithful. He's the only one who is faithful. And so we believe that the work that he's begun in us, he's faithful to complete. And so we rest in that and we believe it and we run back to that. We need to believe that his death paid for our sins and his resurrection promises life to those who are his. I pray that today we would believe Jesus when Jesus said, I am 
And you will see the Son of God, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We need to believe that he's currently reigning and that he's coming again. It's a, it's a present hope and it's a future hope that we have today. So I pray that we would believe that. Lord, we can sit here and we can have words enter into our ears and yet it would never penetrate our hearts. So we need a miracle today. We need a miracle of faith, the gift of faith that you give to believe that your word is true, to believe that when you said I am, our hearts would say you are. You are the Son of God. You are the Savior. You are the one that I need. You are the one that I long for. God, and that wouldn't just be an an initial meeting, but that would be an ongoing relationship for the rest of our lives that we would look to Jesus, longing to know Him and trust Him and believe Him. Thank you for the young men and women here today. Lord, I pray that you would do a miraculous work. That you would stir belief in our hearts, Lord, that we would repent of trying to do it ourselves and we would run to you. God, I pray that I would lead in repentance, that I would be on my face. God, and that we would have a hope that as we repent, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to lead us into righteousness, Lord, for your glory. We ask all this in your name. Amen.